HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you four stories about lost and found culinary treasures. We are searching for what will be lost, and we're trying to rejuvenate it. What we try to do is collect these sourdoughs that contribute to the biodiversity of sourdough in order to store them, to document them, and be able to preserve them for the future. It's bringing back the history and just being part of that time that just, it's, there's nothing like it. You know, there's, there's nothing like it. When fame comes late, uh, I'm sure it's just as sweet as when it comes earlier. <laughs> Tune in to this week's episode of Meat and Three. That's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. This week, we sit down with Lynn Ta and Jonathan Whitener of LA's Here's Looking at You. The duo met at the iconic Los Angeles restaurant Animal, with Lynn managing the dining room and Jonathan holding it down in the kitchen as the CDC. Over time, they realized they shared a similar vision of what they would do if they opened up their own place. So in 2016, they combined forces to open Here's Looking at You, and it quickly became one of the city's and nation's most celebrated restaurants. And, in our humble opinion, is home to one of our favorite tomato dishes. We also go into the archives for a classic performance from Misha, a.k.a. John Chow, a.k.a. one of our ride-or-dies through the hurricane of Houston. He shares his stories of growing up in America, being from Houston, and the inspiration that New Orleans brass band jazz has on his own musical stylings. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food. We talk about music. With musical dudes. Finger on the pulse. Snacky Tunes.
Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Aaron Bresnitz. We're with Lynn Ta, co-owner of Here's Looking at You, and Jonathan Whitener, co-owner and chef of Here's Looking at You. Welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, where'd you guys grow up? I grew up in Georgia. Okay. Southern girl? Yep. Uh, big family, cooking? Tiny family. Um, definitely some cooking. My mom uh, is Vietnamese and my father uh, was Chinese, grew up in Vietnam, so they cooked a lot of Asian food, And uh, <laughs> what was that like growing up in Georgia, having that type of food as a kid? Um, it was embarrassing uh, <laughs> at times. <laughs> the food tasted really good to me, but, you know, growing up there, you know, you just wanted to eat at TGI Fridays and chilies and... You wanted to have literally want- the worst white bread crap yeah. food. Because well, it was exactly. just normal, right? It was just like, you open up your lunch Yeah, 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 yeah. fit in. I, my, you know, I wanted the lunches that all the other kids had at school. And Jonathan, you grew up here, right? I grew up in Orange County. In Orange County. Um, and that's got a Vietnamese, big Vietnamese population as well. The largest concentration outside of Vietnam. Yeah. 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 Uh, and you grew up Mexican home, but did you have a lot of Vietnamese? What was the flavors like of you growing up? I grew up in a Mexican home, but my dad is Southern. Okay. My dad's from originally from the Carolinas. Oh. So there's a lot of Southern and Latin influence in my growing up, but also because where I live in Orange County, it's right next to a gigantic Vietnamese community, next to a gigantic Japanese community, Korean. It's like I call this posh posh and stuff like I grew up eating. Um, so was food important to you both growing up, or was it just a thing in your house, something that either you ran to or embarrassed you at school or things like that? No, food was very important in my household. Uh, what was the importance of it? Uh, why was food such a big deal? Because my family's gigantic. Oh, yeah. So my mom's the oldest of 11, I can't even remember anymore, 11 or 12 brothers and sisters. Wow. And each one of them averaged like three to four kids. So we have a huge family. So it's like when I was younger, it was like that's how everyone got together was on the weekends. There always would be these huge barbecues and things like that. Awesome. Um, so as you get older, food's important to you. What drew you to going to the CIA? What, what actually kicked off your passion of cooking? Well, for me, <clears throat> it's uh, it's it's two things really. Is that one is that my mom and stepdad work like double jobs all the time to like feed me and my other two brothers and like keep us in like you know like, not living in poverty. Yeah. But like, so I had to learn how to cook for myself at a really young age. Like we all kind of did. So like, I got the basics of cooking and like I got the obsession with the Food Network and like watching that and then I eventually started cooking and in a restaurant because just merely by chance because I started off as a dishwasher, I wanted to buy a car. Then they like one day they snatched me up and they're like, you're gonna go move up to prep and help these guys in the restaurant. Can I ask, how how, how often does that happen today? Because I feel like I interview- That doesn't happen today at all anymore. Because I feel like I, I interview a lot of chefs who are of similar age and ilk of yours and so many of them were, I was a dishwasher or I was just doing basic kitchen stuff and then I got moved up to prep, but I feel today there's a little bit more of an apprenticeship going on. Yeah, for me it was just by, by completely by chance, and I ended up being really good at it. And some of the guys that I worked with there on the line and stuff like that were literally like eight or nine years older than me. Yeah, like, you should go to school, man, if you really want to get into this. <clears throat> Talked about the CIA. There ends up being a program at my school that did like an occupational program where like you can there's like this chef instructor who can teach you the basics of cooking. And from there, he can recommend and help you get into whatever cooking school you want to go to. And I went through all of that jazz and went to culinary school in New York. 
Roots, yeah. Amazing. And Lynn, what got you into food? Um, at what point, was there any point in your childhood where you embraced the food that you were having? Like, what was your moment? Yes, absolutely. I, my parents' cooking was incredible. It was more just, it felt like I couldn't share it with my school friends. And then, <laughs> and, I you know, stoked and, to share your I mean, the I funny know. thing now is that I feel like kids show up today and they're like, I've been bimbop. Uh, is there a microwave somewhere where I can heat it up? Like, well, well, exactly. I went through the same thing. I realized um, as I grew up and I went to college and discovered modern versions of my family's cooking in, in bars, you know, in the south modern end of Boston. Of yeah, and I, I just, I was in so much shock that, you know, food that I grew up eating as a child suddenly was becoming hip and popular and yeah. but you know my parents traveled a lot so I actually I grew up very very southern with lots of southern families that took me into their families and I I, I really did have like an all-american diet until um until I always equate my first love of food and restaurant culture was um I took a trip to New Orleans my first summer out of college just to travel with my best friend another big Vietnamese yeah down there as well. <laughs> exactly it's this funny little thread in both of our lives and then of course how we ended up meeting um yeah and I I just I'm all I don't cook um which is also a funny thing I, I'm just a really great eater okay. and and I that love experience positive skill in the, in yeah the <laughs> um how did you two meet we met working at Animal. Yeah. Jonathan had just been hired uh, about like three months in as the chef de cuisine, and I was brought on as a swing manager. I worked a couple shifts a night at Animal managing, and then I also worked at Cinema Gun. Um, now, you both had pretty, I would say, life career changing moments and experiences there. Can you talk a little bit about what you learned from working from John and Vinny, and also arguably, I would say that was the modern, that was the restaurant, especially living in New York, that put LA on my radar for me. Mm -hmm. um, but what did it mean to you? For me, it was just a huge opportunity. Like, I just had left a restaurant that was closing, and I had, like, kind of nowhere to go because usually I was a really decent plan of what I wanted to be doing, like, on my next step. But this restaurant that I was at closed suddenly, and I was like, I don't know, shit, like, what am I gonna do? <laughs> And I remember just texting all of my friends that I knew that were in the industry that were all managers at restaurants and things like that. And at the time, this guy, Mike Magliano, who was a chef to his at Animal at the time was like, literally like drove, because like the restaurant that I was at was two blocks away. And I got in his truck and drove down the street and was like, meet me outside. And I'm like, what's up? He's like, he's like, I have a job for you. He's like, why don't you come work with me at Animal Day and maybe we can look at like, you know, right now I need someone to take over the actual restaurant because he's handling the large portion of catering, which is like their bread and butter. I was like, fine, I'm gonna go. Went and saged, and that day, like, I just, I fell in love with the idea of working there. I was like, this place is an institution, like, you know, there's some things that I didn't agree with that was going on there, but like, I just saw a huge opportunity to like, take over this restaurant. And I know it's gonna be easy, because they're so protective of their menu, so protective of their space and how they want things done. But I think that if I could, if I told myself if I could prove myself, I could, I could definitely make this a place be like my next home and I was there for like three years three years yeah which is amazing to stay in a place for three years yeah. especially a place that's doing that type of volume I mean I w I've been back there and whether it was two years ago three years ago six years ago it's still consistently good yeah. and you were learning the operations there right I was um, I was coming across coming from a different job where I was uh, a first-time manager <clears throat> 
and I also looked at it as an amazing opportunity to come into a company that was growing at the time. I was hired because other managers were moving on to open Twelve Mac with Chef Ludo. Yeah. Um, and I just wanted, I mean, I had at that time told like four and a half people in my life that I was interested in opening a restaurant. So it was actually still kind of like a dormant secret, I guess, um, out there. So I, I just wanted to gain as much experience as possible. And what I loved about my job was um, to help manage two of their restaurants. They were actually quite different. Yeah. They had different personalities and different chefs and different ways of running things, even if they were under the same umbrella mm-hmm. and management group. So I, I enjoyed that. So every week, like, I could see how Chef Jonathan ran his kitchen. I could see how Chef Frank was running Son of a Gun at the time. Um, it was very interesting. And so, how did you two go from meeting each other at Animal to saying, maybe we'll be business partners? And is that a conversation that you have off-site because it's sort of moving away from your place of employment? Exactly. Um, It didn't occur to me um, for over, it was like a year and three months into my time at Animal. Um, we notoriously didn't like each other when we first started working oh. together. Oh, yeah. And I was like, oh, my God. But sometimes that makes for the strongest <laughs> partnerships. Yeah. yeah. For, when you can overcome that initial, I don't like you. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, even though I maybe disliked him, I, I knew initially that I certainly respected him as a chef. Okay. It was very clear to me that um, he was very talented. And I the dishes that he was putting onto the, di- the menu at the time, made sense for the menu, but I felt like really added to an involvement of that menu. Um, So over time, I just, I think for me, the turning point was he allowed me to taste a dish that he was working on for the menu, and I really appreciated that he even cared what I had to say about that dish. I don't remember what the dish was. Do you remember the dish? I don't remember either. There were so many. And it's, I mean, this is how like life is here, too, at Here's Looking at You. But anyway, um, one day, it just... I had had this idea a long time ago that I wanted to open um, a modern Vietnamese bar mm-hmm. with you know, cocktails and eating food of, of Vietnamese flavors. And I was just driving to work one day, and I remember I was like at Virgil and Beverly or something, and I, I think I like almost hit a bird. <laughs> and I was like, wait a minute, Jonathan would be amazing. Like He's the perfect chef. He knows Vietnamese flavors better than I do, better than my own mom. And um, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say something to him. I'm gonna do something today. And they were all going out that night. All right, they always go out. I never went out. And um, so I'm just, I'm a morning person, not a night person. And they were going out to celebrate a, a guy that was going abroad to stage. And, uh, and I was like, you guys going out tonight? And they were going to like some Thai strip club. And I was like, I'm coming. <laughs> so that was. That's where the best business meetings happen. Yes. Ooh, Thai strip clubs. Totally. And even then, I was a little bit nervous. I didn't want to bring it up at like a social gathering, drinking whiskey, playing pool, and watching the strippers. <laughs> and anyway, I brought it up, and it, he seemed to be into it. He thought about it the following day, and then since it seemed like it was going to happen, he was like, oh, I'll make some food for your birthday that's coming up. And then I decided the, the right thing to do was probably to leave the company and not... <laughs> not coach. <laughs> well, you know, not, not, not cook ideas yeah. while we're like sitting there working together. I mean, yeah. And Jonathan, what was your side of it? Because as a chef there, being there for three years, um, being in the kitchen, when did you start to feel that it was time to go out on your own? And was this the spark that pushed you over the edge? Or had you been ruminating on it for a while? Well, for me, there's always I had two options that I always wanted to do in my career. was either that I would have, yeah, opened my own restaurant or I'd be working for, like, a 
big restaurant group and be like a number two that handled things. Sure. And which is a solid position. Yeah, and I was hoping that that was something I'd be working towards at Animal and with or for the guys at John Vinny or for John Vinny, but uh, that position just wasn't like ready to be there yet. So it was just like, you know, what am I going to do? Am I going to stay here like another year or two? Like, there's nearly nothing. Can't I can't just stay here and keep doing the same thing at the same restaurant? So the best move, obviously, was that I'm going to go and open this restaurant with Lynn. Awesome. Well, we're going to take a quick musical break. Then we're going to hear about the actual opening, coming to Koreatown, and all the awesome success that you guys have found in your first few years. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We're here with Lynn and Jonathan of Here's Looking at You. So you two have become friends. Yes. You have poached or breached the idea of opening a restaurant together and you've left Animal. Uh, what were the next steps um, in a city that is somewhat notoriously known for not really helping open restaurants? Um, 
It's a good question. Nobody, there's no manual. Yeah. <laughs> so by the, when I left, I obviously, I mean, Jonathan needed to stay because he obviously needed to earn a living. I was doing some freelance work. There was like a small other dumpling project that I was interested in working on with someone else. Um, so the truth is, is I really didn't do anything. You know, I, I didn't know what the steps were. It was a kind of a daunting task. And, you know, I was doing other people consult on their projects which is always helpful in figuring out how you're going to open yours right but um, you go I want to do that oh I'm yeah. going to feel this oh okay that might work yeah so six months later after my departure you know and Jonathan's super busy he's helping you know at this point John and Vinny's is opening catering was crazy um, one day uh, through a friend of a friend we essentially found and discovered that this space here uh, at West 6th Street was available essentially our friend Jimmy Hahn, who owns Beer Belly, had owned a small Philly cheesesteak takeout situation called Wiz, and he had personal <coughs> plans of taking over the two adjacent spaces next to it, which this is a building that he and his family own, and he was going to open like a sit-down beer and wine serving version of Wiz, but then as he started those plans, he was also de he decided to backtrack and thought, you know, I actually don't want to do this, instead maybe I'll sell this business, think of a great tenant that would take over, hopefully. Yeah. And I was just, you know, life is about timing, and I think I was just sitting at the right dinner table at the right time. So I was like, I want to come and look at that space. So I looked at the space, I looked at sort of the preliminary plans, but he didn't really have any idea that I was interested in opening a place. I think he thought I would probably know someone that would be interested. Then I had Jonathan come over and look at the space. He took a few days to think about it, and then when we reconvened, we decided, you know, the Vietnamese idea that we had had before wouldn't work for this space. The space would be too big. Mm. So, did you want more of like a hole in the wall place for the Vietnamese? I, yeah, yeah, like small, narrow, and dark. <laughs> <laughs> um, but also, you probably for a space that's a little bit larger need to have a strong alcohol cocktail component, which you yeah. guys are, are known for. Yeah, but we didn't know that we would be known for it. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, I mean, at it, that time too, the there was not just all these these three spaces. There was a fourth one next door, which is now the sushi place. Oh yeah. The original concept was that we would have ADB here. I'm sorry, uh, uh, here's looking at you here. And then there would be kind of like a speakeasy door somewhere over here opening mm. up into Tet, mm -hmm. which would be there. And I love like, a good speakeasy place. And that would yeah. have been like Secret door. the VDB snacks and like tropical yeah. inspired cocktails and stuff, really dark, you know, like cool. But, but we then, needed money yeah. to secure all of this. And so essentially our landlord was like, all of that sounds lovely, <laughs> but we can't. I can't hold four spaces for you. So he ended up, you know, finding the sushi tenant, which was great. And then he was nice enough to kind of put this place on hold for us until we got our shit together, so to speak. So we essentially, Jonathan wrote a menu in like 15 minutes on my dining room table that like took my breath away. And I was like, okay, I guess we're serious. I don't know what this is, but it's obviously Jonathan as a chef cooking his food and we're gonna figure out how to describe this. I put together a 19-page business plan in two days, and then we asked a bunch of people that have ever paid any attention to us that might also have deep pockets. We kind of got a bunch of verbals. We're like, yeah, we'll give you some money, maybe. And, you know, it kind of just spiraled from there. Now, in writing that first menu, you know, so many bands talk about you spent the first X amount of years of your life writing that first album. And since this was your first big restaurant, did you already have an idea of what you wanted to make, or? No, not really. <laughs> okay. Um, so then how was the process if it came to you so quickly? Like, how did it all gel so quickly? And I ask that because having eaten here, it's such a clear point of view of what the food is. 
Uh, well, that oh, that menu that I wrote for her to put in the business plan was just like, for, it's weird for me. She knows this. Like, spaces speak to me and what they dictate the food mm. for me, and like what I see and envision that space being becoming, and like. And when, it, when I first stepped in here, I immediately knew that, like, you know, the Bartet, the Beauty Beast thing wasn't going to work. <clears throat> it was going to have to be something else. And it was going to have to be some type of... I don't know what. Like, I just wrote it. I don't know how to explain that. Like, I just knew that there's a certain format of dishes that I wanted to have. Like, I wanted a tartare. I wanted, like, one or two crudos, like, two or three good salads. And then, like, these, you know, nice small meats, bigger meats, you know, a couple of, like cooked fish dishes, some cooked vegetable dishes, things like that, and it just kind of, like, came together. I don't know how to explain that. Like, I mean, it feels very much like a love letter to L.A. Yeah. Um, and were you pulling from your life experiences here and all the places you've cooked at? Yeah, I mean, well, I learned this this motto that kind of, like, the thing that I kind of developed this when I was at Animal, and it was kind of, like, <clears throat> I don't want people to recognize it. Like, it's going to be something that you don't, you've never heard of or you don't understand sometimes when you read some of the ingredients but like when it comes to you it's something that looks familiar and then when you taste it then you're going to start to get it and be like oh I get this this is a play on this but it has this one little twist on it and like it's kind of like that I don't give a fuck mentality of like like what goes into it as long as it tastes good yeah that's all I care about now Koreatown has become more popular I feel by each passing day and this definitely feels like the type of whatever wave this is of Koreatown opening up. Um, how much has this location inspired the restaurant and what was important to you in opening uh, in this part of town? Um, again, it wasn't something that we sought out by any means, but when it came to us, it started to really weave together what our story ended up being, which is, you know, this is, this is Koreatown ended up being you know, physically on a map, just the very, very center of Los Angeles. And we, from there, we really wanted to highlight the culinary intersections and kind of how it wove in. The rent, the way we could afford, so it was just other things like that. I mean, we wanted, the way that I sensed it, you know, emotionally, it just felt like it was going to be a little bit different. And so we needed to find a little bit of a different space. We needed to think of a name that was a little bit different. And it ended up this is this is where we are. So I mean, I'm so happy to see the development of Koreatown, yeah. and it's been wonderful to see because I th I think I also envisioned that it was going to be a destination restaurant, you mm -hmm. know. And and while this is the most densely populated neighborhood in Los Angeles, and we do get neighbors and Koreatown natives, we were most excited that it was adjacent to Hancock Park, and that it would also be a great meeting place for people coming from the east side and people coming from the west side. You need those here. here. Yeah. You need yeah. those. You need those central places where you go. I'll meet you halfway. Exactly. Yeah. I'm not going to go over to your part of town. So in those early days, once you get the money, once you have the vision, uh, what was it opening like over here? What were those early days of, of putting it together? Uh, a lot of it was, it's, a, it's all black to me. I don't even remember a lot of it. It was so stressful. At the time, it was very stressful. What made um, it so stressful? Well, you know, I mean, it was our... We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> and, you know, here we are. Which is, by the way, very refreshing to hear. Because yeah. some people come in and go, oh, yeah, we opened up our first place. Uh, we sort of hit all, you know, fired all cylinders. Like, a lot of people hire, like, people that help expedite the things for them, do things, design, all that jazz. And we were like, fuck this. We're not paying for all this extra garbage. We like, just didn't have enough money. Yeah, we're going to do it ourselves. <laughs> we're going to do it ourselves. So, I mean, luckily we had, like, a couple of random people that were kind enough to almost be mentorly to us um, but yeah I mean it was just it was like well I, I have an extra $50,000 today 
so maybe we can make some progress on buying lumber to build a bar you know and it it just would go from there you know and then I we don't know we don't really know how (laughs) we did this Um, but looking back it was I guess they say that they're all different looking back it was actually relatively easy we did it in under a year that's amazing Um, we you know miraculously got full liquor we found the right people to do our bar we found we have nice kitchen tile in the kitchen because our contractor made a mistake and gave us birthday tile it was on Jonathan's birthday oh. just little things really came together and then we have these funny animal heads you know it's just I mean I it really know. it feels like a team operation though it doesn't feel I think maybe where the success comes in it feels like you've built a community within the restaurant where everyone can pitch in yeah absolutely um, and why you know, you know, was that something that you learned in the past from like John and Vinny, or is that something that you learned in the past where you go, we're going to do this our own way? Um, I think innately for me, I'm just a partnership-driven person, and I had spent so long imagining myself opening a restaurant, but also understanding that I would need a pretty amazing partner to do it with. And then I spent a lot of time thinking that was never going to happen, so what's the point, and what am I going to do with my life? And then when it finally did happen, I mean, I'm, I just try to be as thoughtful as possible. And I think it's just, you can't do these kinds of things yourself. You really have to find the great people to work with. And that's kind of like how we actually look at our team as yeah. well now. I mean, they're all, it's very, very collaborative. And everybody should be seen and heard to make this place greater. I mean, it's knowing that you start off as maybe not getting along or like each other. And now that you've been in business together as partners, how has your <coughs> relationship evolved? Um, is there any advice or warnings you could give to people who are thinking about joining up with a partner to start a new business? Yes. I mean, it's not for everybody. I think we're really lucky. I mean, I admire Jonathan. He's my family. Like, he's the closest person I have to family. Um, and you really have to communicate. Yep. Um, but you really have to trust and believe in each other. And I think a lot of partnerships, I think, probably that fail... You know, they just won't talk to each other. And when things get hard, especially... Because they're going to get hard. Because it's going to get hard. It's hard right now, you know. And Jonathan and I, we have to talk about the hard times. And we have to talk about how we're going to problem solve it. It's helpful if we are the same mindset. And I think what I love about Jonathan that I've actually learned more of is just don't give up on your determination. Like, he's a super determined person. And so, and you know, and I... I think I'm determined as well, and I have great drive, but, you know, sometimes things can be really so so tricky that you you sometimes want to give up. I mean, you kind of have that, too. Mm. We're like, oh, man, let's go to Costa Rica instead. Mm. <laughs> let's just empty the cash register, <laughs> not pay the vendors. So now that you've been open uh, for a while and you've found success, um, you've made your way into some recognizable lists, including uh, this year's Eater's Essential list. Um, what does that mean to you to represent LA in that way, but your food and your voice uh, out of pretty much every restaurant in America to be at the top? <laughs> I don't know. It was a kind of like un- it was a kind of a surreal feeling that like when she texted me that in the morning, and I was just like, "What?" <laughs> I was like, "Really?" It's like for me, it was like, "Oh man!" Like somebody finally gets it. And yeah. I'm like it's about time that somebody finally gets that like what not just what we're doing as a team but like what my our team here is doing and like especially in the food and it was like I love the fact that he just didn't recognize the food but he also commented on how Lynn runs the front of the house and it's yeah. like I feel like no one else on that list really got that nod 
and it's true because it's we're very unique I like to think in what we do here in reality it's just that we just don't have amazing food but we have an amazing service and an amazing front of the house team we have amazing cocktails we have an amazing bar team like it's this, this restaurant itself is this is unique I think in the United States in general and not and especially here like we're I mean I don't want to Toot my own horn, toot. but like toot away, <laughs> toot away, chef. You have thirty I, I, minutes. <laughs> I don't think anyone else. I don't think there's any other restaurant that amplifies what Los Angeles is more than us, because we are an ode to everything. Like I, every menu, everything that we do, they're like I can tell you where that dish came from, where like the inspiration came from, like me eating at like a taco truck or you know going and having Middle Eastern food, like you know on the West Side and stuff. I can tell you where all the inspiration came from. That's because of Los Angeles. It's because of living and growing up here and eating here, working here my entire life, like, it all influenced me to do what I do here. I mean, that's amazing, and there are not a lot of places like that. Well, listen, congratulations. If people want to come visit the restaurant or check out your Instagram game, where can they go? They can go to at Here's Looking At You LA uh, for our Instagram, which connects to our Twitter and Facebook, and then go to our website. And then come in for, uh, for a meal. Absolutely. We're open for dinner every night at 6 o'clock, and we're open for weekend brunch on Saturdays and Sundays from 10.30 to 2.30, and it's delicious. Have a couple cocktails. Yeah. Yes. Knock out some food. Uh, well, thank you so much. We have a song from the archives and then a live performance on Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. Patina is also the exclusive caterer at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium, to galas in the renovated Palm House, and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lilypool Terrace. Executive chef Morgan Jarrett's unique menu offers warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. Hi, my name is Sam Ben Ruby, and I'm the host of The Grape Nation on Heritage Radio Network. With this show, we bring wine to the people. Each week, we bring the best guests in wine on, taste different wines on air, and invite our listeners to taste with us. You'll find our approach to wine decidedly unsnobby. You can find The Grape Nation wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. We have John Chow of By Four. Misha? Misha. Misha. Close enough. Close enough. Yeah. All things. 80-20. 80-20. And who's your 20% over here? And then we have Hannes Brown, uh, virtuosic guitar player, composer, who is not talking but is instrumental to today and part of the band. Welcome to Snacky Tunes, both of you. That's a thumbs up from Hannes and a hi, John. Hi. So you grew up all over the place, all over the world. Yeah. And it's pretty... Evident in your music that you have global influences. Where are some of the places that you're pulling from, from your youth and younger years and wilder times? From from back in the dark days. From, from back, <laughs> from back days. in the dark days. Um, I definitely, I grew up in Texas and if you, in, in Houston, which is about five hours outside of New Orleans. And so between Houston, which has country music and Western music and blues and everything else, and New Orleans with jazz and second line and brass and everything else, you end up with this amazing mixture of root, quote, big air quotes, roots music. That's a huge part of, that's a huge part of, sorry, I just triggered something. That's a huge part of uh, my upbringing. And then, of course, I spent my early childhood until I was 11 in Asia, in Hong Kong and Taiwan. And so we grew up listening to a lot of Chinese opera and Indonesian gamelan music and Indian music. And so that Who's is your the, favorite Chinese opera star. Oh man, you can't, there's so many. No, actually I never learned any of their names because they all sound, this is the dirty secret about Chinese opera. You don't actually go to listen to the melodies because there aren't any to really speak of. I'm looking over at Hannes who actually would probably enjoy it, but it's, it's, it's something it's, it's like blue cheese or like, um, Marmite, you you learn to love it. Okay, you don't actually. Nobody's like, I want, I dig that solo. I love blue cheese. I mean, I think blue cheese is great. Did you grow up loving blue cheese? Uh, no, I right. mean, but not no. But I just we didn't really eat it that much. But um, once I kind of got into it, you really appre- right off the bat. I remember trying Marmite for the first and last time. <laughs> exactly. like, but like, I, I'm an adventurous eater, but this is just something no. I would never get yeah. to. Yeah, my mom grew up in Australia, so one time she brought home some. Uh, Marmite or Vegemite, one or the other, for me and my sister. And we, she's told us it was chocolate because she wanted to, you know, mess with it. Cause that's kind of mom I had. Yeah. Um, and man, that was the first and last time. I can still taste it. That stuff is anyway. So Chinese opera is Chinese like that. Op- Chinese opera for like music. Marmite. Okay, you've been warned. Knowing all these different types of music and having mm-hmm. all these different sounds that are all over the place. It's not just like Americana. It's it's global world music. How do you begin to infuse all of the different sounds and 
kind of pull it into a cohesive narrative when you're putting together yeah. your music? I think um, our label would say that we have not managed to do that well, and we're still trying to get that. Name together. check the label. Tom Lab. Hi, Tom Lab. Hi, Tom Lab. Famous for Patrick Wolf in the books and Cassio Tone and Deerhoof. But, um, but I think the way that we try to do this, or I try to do this, is um, at the end of the day, Misha is about pop songs and or or pop melodies and um a sense of romance and bittersweetness and that's the core and then everything else around it is like setting the stage you know it's sort of like if you watch the movie in in the mood for love or something that is a chinese or cantonese movie but the themes are universal and so the goal for me at least when i write these songs is at the end of the day you can play them which we're going to do mostly today on guitar or piano and have it work but it's set in a particular scene or a particular place that, you know, happens to fit the melody or the words. When you're writing this music, do you have a certain thematic or somatic um, idea in mind? Is there a different setting for each of these songs outside of just the music that accompanies that's a, it? That's a great question. I kind of do. Um, <clears throat> I can usually there's a, a color and a darkness and the time of day, and there's a feeling. It's sort of like, um, you know, when you. Sometimes when you watch a really amazing movie or, or read a really good book or you're out somewhere at night and there's that, there's that time right between like 6 and 7 when the sun's setting. Magic hour. The magic hour. Or 2 a.m. when you're just like anything could happen. I'm not ready to go to bed yet, but this is kind of weird and I'm sort of out of body. That feeling is 90% of what I try to go for when I'm writing the songs. And then um, and I usually there's a, a color and a texture like... The song, we're going to play a song called Limelight, and for me, it, for me, in my head, when you listen to the song on the album, it's Tokyo or Hong Kong in the rain, right around 11 p.m. When you play the song today, I want to get the setting and also the backdrop for, for everything. You play a lot of the instruments on the record. Yeah. For the more global instruments or global sounds, who did you bring in for collaboration, and how did you guide them in the process? Yeah, it's a great question. So um, <clears throat> for the brass stuff, there was this one song called A Later that has uh, essentially a second line, which is uh, a New Orleans brass band sound. I, play, I arranged it, but I needed friends from Texas and New Orleans to play on it to make it feel right, because if it's too tight, it sounds wrong. If it's too loose, it sounds wrong, and there's a certain rhythm that you have to grow up hearing. So that's one example, and I had another friend in Tokyo who played some parts, and um, for the house music bits, our first album was produced uh, in Hamburg in Germany by a bunch of um, mute records and compact records guys, DJ Kotze and stuff like that, and so I asked for a lot of help from them because, you know, I know what I know, but to make it feel right, you have to sometimes go to the source, which is important. How do you blend it all together once you get the pieces or give them direction? Or if you're deferring to someone who's such a master, yeah. <clears throat> but you say, I know that's how you want it, but I want it like this because it's, it's my music. How do you or what? How do you get all of the creative minds together to become the Misha sound? I think I'm getting better at sitting with something and, and letting it, as opposed to going, no, that's not exactly what I wanted from the first in the first place and therefore redo it. I'm getting, I'm looking for happy accidents more and more, which I think is... Um, is the whole point but if you come from a place where you electronic music especially when you write everything yourself it's hard to let go I think you're used to doing everything yourself and so this idea that oh, I have a, this is a different sound that's weird I don't like it that's the natural rea- at least for me the natural reaction and so for, for, to your answer your question um, I wait I listen to it and I kind of sit there and go how do I make 
how do, how does this help the song as opposed to where do I slot this thing in and if it doesn't slot in let me change it and that makes it a lot better I think can we hear a song sure okay what time of day it is what's the <laughs> setting what's the color give us give us set, paint the scene for us so this song um, is called limelight and this song is definitely darker colored um, 11 p.m kind of rainy and uh, either Hong Kong or Tokyo, lots of neon. Here we are, Misha, live on Snacky Tunes. Get lost, oh, we belong. 
know you've been lonely Hold your heart, I know you can hear me I'll leave a trail so you can follow I'll leave a trail so you never get lost, oh Your latest record started with the ending of a relationship and the passing of your grandmothers, but you also write really great pop songs that are joyous and happy and talk about beginnings. How do you balance the juxtaposition of the two themes so you don't veer too far to one side and get stuck in one thematic uh, ongoing loop? Yeah. You mean the one where you start to like cry, listen to The Cure, and stay home and... You start to sorry, wrong mic. The one where you the loop of death spiral of the cure and black clothing and curtains. Yeah. Um, I think part of writing the album was an attempt to not do that because it's so tempting. Um, I think the way to, if you said contradiction or, or juxtaposition, I think that's exactly what I try to find in everything. And so if it's a joyous song, we have a couple songs in the album that are super super bright and poppy. Then the lyrics are typically darker. <clears throat> and if the lyrics are dark, like the song Limelight is, the lyrics repeat over and over again um, because it's kind of like a mantra. And I'm Buddhist, and so there's a lot of meditation and, and mantras in Buddhism. And the idea is to, through that process, kind of um, exercise the things that are in your mind. And as part of that, I think um, when you have such dark lyrics, in, in the case of Limelight, you want to pop your melody to balance it out. And um, I always try to find that bittersweetness so nothing's either too happy or too sad. And the things I love in art and movies and books are always the same way. If it doesn't veers either side too much, it feels like it doesn't resemble life. So when you were putting together All We Will Become, were you going one song happy, one song sad, <laughs> one song happy, one song sad? Or how did you batch it together in the writing process? Yeah. <clears throat> um, it, you mentioned this relationship ending and my grandmother passing away. And then at the same time, my sister was having, I had a, a new nephew in the process and, um, and a couple of people got married in our band. And so I think the cycle of this, of the album, it starts with a song called, this is how it must begin. And it ends with a song called Chartres, which is a reference to the cathedral in, in France. And so the idea is it's actually one loop. It starts in the beginning and then it builds to the middle where you have this sort of, um, it starts, brash and big like life kind of does with optimism and happiness and big bold songs and then right at the middle of the song later I was talking about with the second line drums and New Orleans feel second line is called second line because it follows the funeral march so it's celebratory but it's also elegiac it's meant to be happy and sad and that's the middle of the album and then as you listen to the second half of the album it starts to become more like twilight and then it ends in a church with the idea of it's kind of on the nose a bit, but the idea of salvation or release. And that's how I sequenced the album as well. So did this help? Um, you know what? It, it did in the sense that it gave me something to do, like that focused this sort of the feelings and the confusion and everything else. It anchored it and it gave it purpose. And I met Hannes and my, my, our singer, Ronit, who double, we, we double all of our songs kind of like the way The Kills does. Um, she's not here, but we worked on the album together and uh, it, I think it helped me, certainly, but it also helped her. And, um, yeah. Can we hear another song? Sure. What's the setting for this? What time of day? What's the color? These, the next two are both darker songs. And they're, um, this one is called uh, Cavalry. And it is brown. It, think of it as probably London or Scotland. And um, 
It's meant to reference the Calvary cross, which is the cross of the circle in the middle. And um, think fuzzy sweaters and a little bit more sadness. Okay, here, live on Snacky Tunes. <laughs> Thank you. 
Speaking of true love, I know you like ice cream. I love ice cream. I love ice cream. You went on a five-borough ice cream tour a few years back, didn't you? Yeah. <clears throat> What's your favorite? What's the story behind it? How many cones can you do in a day? <laughs> How long did this last? Is it still going on? Yeah, so I went with... Um, Wow, that's a lot of questions in one. My favorite, so my initial favorite was Odd Fellows, which is in Brooklyn, and we love Sam Mason. Amazing, right? Snacky Tunes Dinner with the Band. Oh my family. goodness, so good! And Odd Fellows, especially because once they found out that we were doing this five road food tour, even though we have collectively ten followers on all the social media, they gave us free scoops, which is sort of like a bartender giving you free drinks at the, like at ten a.m. So right. you know, it's a good bad idea. Yeah. And then we went on to do. Um, a 25, 25 scoops each in one day in one day without any other food by the end we were so and you have this weird feeling where it's like you're, you're slightly jet lagged because you've gone through five cycles of sugar high um, now so Oddfellows is amazing and I think in the city in New York in, in Manhattan Morgan Stearns is our favorite Morgan Stearns is just amazing both of those are Incredible. In terms of how many cones, uh, we did four cones before we thought cones. It's like hot dog eating contest. It's useless. You don't need the cone. You really just want to get at the actual, the crux of the ice So you just got rid of the cone and just went to the cup. And so we still do it. And the last time we did it, we went with Bjork's engine, this guy Andy Baldwin, who's a mixing engineer, um, and a couple other musicians. We had five people in the car, and we did tacos. And uh, tacos are better. Salty food is better, especially when it's protein and starch. And so we each did like eight tacos in a day, which is a lot, but not so many that you, you're that's, like... That's, that's okay. That's, that's, like, that's like doable. That's, that's not even comparable to 25 scoops. No. <laughs> 25 scoops is a mistake. What yeah. was the uh, what was on the lower end of the list? Who did not kind of get up there? Or did you go to like a... Did you throw like a basket and robins in there? Okay, or just come so, from generic So this is the chains. issue, right? Bronx is not great for ice cream. Right. You, and we turn out later that you can get like halado and, and, and sort of like Argentine or, or Mexican ice cream up there. But you have to go like way, way, way up. So we ended up having to do Carvel. Oh, man. Yeah, which I thought would be like hipster cool. You know, so ironically cool. But it turned out just to be bad. Like the ice cream was fro- like had that freezer burn taste to it. You know, I love in, in college, I would eat um, Elio's frozen pizza. And in I my, love those. In my mind, I still like Elio's frozen pizza, but I think now that I've had all this pizza and seen the back of Roberta's, that if I were to eat it, I'd be like, oh, <laughs> no. Know. So I don't ever want to touch the memory. I kind of feel like Baskin-Robbins, Carvel's, all that stuff that you got in high yeah. school is like, oh, I like ice cream. That was ice cream. And then you have something like Van Leeuwen's or Oddfellows or Morgenstern, and you go back and you go, oh, this is just like synthetic garbage. It's not great. Although Baskin-Robbins, I have to say, like, pistachio to me the fact i grew up in texas eating you know artificial green so now when i see like fancy pistachio that's white colored like that to me is wrong you should always have food coloring so it looks green that's like uh growing up there was a strong push for natural soda so you get orange soda that was just clear because they didn't put the dye in there um but your mind just i mean i guess your mind couldn't just wrap your head around oh it just tastes like oranges even though it's clear it's weird even though the orange is not (laughs) real fanta and and all that stuff is sunkissed that that orange is not like oh it's got real oranges that's why it's that color do you have a favorite ice cream i love um sea salt caramel uh which which is not which is not that interesting because most people like it. No, I mean it's like it's like it's good though. It's like Radiohead, it's like it's, living Radiohead. Yeah, um, and also Oddfellows, um, like the corn ice cream. The corn ice cream that was the first one we had. I, Hannah's, I'm looking at Hannah's. <laughs> Hannah's can't answer, but have you had the corn ice cream? It's amazing. And the popcorn ice cream where they actually like apparently soak the milk in the pop. Anyway, yeah. I digress. But yeah, I mean it's almost. I mean today is not a good indicator, but it's almost time for summer ice cream. I think cones. it's time for fiber of 
ice cream run again. When you're not doing five burrows, do you, are you two scoops, three scoops, one scoop? I Sunday. I am a quiet shame Sunday corner. <laughs> <laughs> it's like you're reading my diary. <laughs> um, I have ice cream every day. Every day? Every day. No way. It's totally. Like, la- I can tell you, last night I had Talenti uh, ice cream because I was at somebody's house. and that's Oh, I'm had. sorry. But is this 365 days a year you have ice cream? This is like 320 days a year so, of ice cream. Oh, okay. So yeah. maybe not on the coldest, darkest day of winter. No, those are the best days because if you go now to Morgan's Cerns, there's like a line. It's like the longest line you've ever right. seen in your life. It goes around the block. So I actually go in the... In the Okay, so this is how you know a true ice cream aficionado. We are the ones in Morgan Stearns or Oddfellows at like January 5th with like one of those ice cream bags because you know you can get in there and get a ton of pints and ice cream and get out before there's a, you know, without a line. Does that kind of like a bartender, do you get rewarded in the summer? They know you and they say, oh, John, you know, come come up here. You know, I should do, I should do that. I'm just kind of curious because the dedicate you're the ones that keep the, the money in the register in the winter, <clears throat> but do you have to wait in that line in the summer? You should get with Oddfellows, no, because they know me. But with Morgan Cerns, the turnover is high enough that like, and I, I never met whoever the the, big, the you dude should is. you should get a hold of Nick. I should you should get a hold yeah. of Nick and say, hey Nick, yo, yo I'm on Snacky Tunes. I'm on Snacky Greg, Tunes. Greg says hi. Uh, Hook me up. So what's up next for Misha? Um, we are recording our third album. Fantastic. Yeah, pretty excited. It's not going to be as, to your, you know, the juxtaposition will still be there. The pop songs will still be there, but I think it'll be simpler. Less heartbreak. Less heartbreak. No, still always heartbreak. Always heartbreak. Well, if there's no heartbreak, you end up having this thing about your dog and your gun and yeah. your truck. And that only goes so far when you live in New York. So <laughs> None of which you have. None of which I have. Yeah, I'd start with, I mean, which one am I going to get easiest to get these dog. days? Dog, probably. oh god, oh, actually, yeah, these 2017, days? exactly. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so recording the new album. Uh, yep. Same process. Are you inviting more people in this time? I am, I am, and I think I've been listening to a lot of two different groups of music, like two different types of music. One is I'm like I love Noi and the sort of German kraut rock thing, super minimal. Like think maybe an ESG, so funk a little bit, but like minimal wire LCD sound system. And then I've been listening to um, a ton of Flume and like what they call future bass. Neither one of which is my sort of natural home. Maybe more Noi. So we'll see what the new album comes out. It'll probably be country music next. Okay, great. Yeah. Well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Where can people find the records, listen to you? I mean, you're not on Instagram anymore because they made you take it down. They, my PR agency is like, seriously, just you're insulting us as a collective representation of you. So I've taken that. No take more ice cream. cream photos. It, yeah, I take down all your ice cream photos. Um, you can find us on Spotify, Pandora, iTunes, everywhere. If you search for Misha and then type in limelight for the song you'll find the rest of the album perfect well thank you to philip spear for being on the episode and if you like this episode check out our archives and please make sure to leave us a review and even rate us because why not podcasts Woo! john thanks so much for coming on thanks, Hannah. thanks for being here we will be back next week with another episode of snacky tunes what are you going to take us out with what's the setting the color the, the time of day this song is total nashville i was watching nashville the mo- the tv show which by the way is I think way better than Empire for its crazy drama, but one could, you know, agree to disagree. This song is definitely a country song. Think Johnny, uh, think Richard Thompson or like uh, a little, maybe a little bit of mm, Waylon Jennings or something or George Strait, modern country. Okay. Well, thanks for joining us. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening. Take us out. Thanks for having us. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.